The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. In 1979, six weeks after having left the executive branch, I moved to Beijing, and we kind of represented the first group of foreign investors into China since the formation of the People's Republic of China, 30 years prior to that, so in 1949. I think it's fair to say the relationships and the understanding between Chinese and Americans that came out of those investments that were formed by both the negotiation and the implementation of those investments built bridges between our two countries. Ten years ago, Investment flows became two-way. Chinese companies began to invest here. What was a trickle has become a stream, and it's probably going to become a river. Chinese capital is providing 80,000 jobs today and will likely provide between 200 and 400,000 jobs at the end of this decade. It will change the way many Chinese and Americans think about each other. As a result of the experience which I had in the late 70s and the 80s, working with investors into China, and as a result of the experience of many of the National Committee members and directors investing in, in China, and because of the need to understand what this investment by China means in local communities around the United States, we decided to do a study on the effect of Chinese investment at the local level per congressional district. When we made that decision, it was easy to decide to whom, with whom we should work because the rhodium group is the best in the business. Today, we're re Dan Rosen, who's a co-founder of the Rhodium Group, and Thilo Heinemann, who is director of research at the Rhodium Group, are here to talk about it. So what I'd like to do is turn it over to them to roll out this study. We'll then take some questions. Then we'll move on to a presentation by one of the largest Chinese investors in the United States, the chairman of Fuyao Glass. And then we'll have a panel, which includes Dan, Tilo, me, one of America's leading experts on foreign direct investment, and the mayor of Thomasville, Alabama, that's a recipient of Chinese investment. So with no further ado, let me turn it over to Tilo and Dan, who have done a truly magnificent job on this study. Thanks, guys. Steve, thank you so much. And it's uh, such an honor and privilege to be part of the program uh, here today for the National Committee as it warms up for year 50. Um, it's such an important organization. And when Steve suggested 
that we try to find a way to put together the, the, the uh, research Rhodium had in mind around these new flows of Chinese investment here with the committee's desire to, as usual, find a way to dial down the anxiety based on sentiment and replace it with some thoughtful, uh, considered basis for the United States and China to work through new issues and new challenges that arise um, as the relationship unfolds over the decades. Um, I couldn't imagine um, a better undertaking um, for us to direct ourselves to. Um, the sponsors for this study uh, are very important, without which this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Um, a Star, Ernst Young, and Perfect World um, helped uh, put together the resources to make this possible. I'm grateful for them. Uh, they're the kind of folks who really know more about what's happening on the ground than almost anybody else because they're the ones who live it on the bottom line of their businesses. Outbound direct investment into the world has always been an important part of the American story. Some of our earliest settlements in this country, including the one underneath where you're sitting now called New Amsterdam, were in fact the assets of multinational corporations who were getting legal corporate charters to go out and found uh, new uh, undertakings in the world economy uh, 400 years ago. So down through the centuries and the decades since then, outbound direct investment from elsewhere in the world has continued to be a critical part of the American story helping to deepen the industrial assets and potential of this country, uh, enriching its technological capabilities. And then, once America got to its stride, we turned around and became one of the most important global investors ourselves. The newest addition to that global story today is China. As much as we've talked about the global awakening awakening of China uh, for decades now, China as an outbound direct investor is really a very new story. Direct investment doesn't mean buying somebody else's treasury bonds. It means greenfield investments on the ground, building factories, buying expensive existing assets in a merger and acquisition transaction. That's very new for China even today. It's in its infancy as a global direct investor. But now already it's a very important story, including for the United States. Consider the bars on this chart. Uh, the first four concern things that have been happening for a long time. And in each case, we have a pair of bars. The first, describing the change in U.S.-China economic activity from 2000 and, I need to put my glasses on, Tilo, because did you use 2002 to 2007, versus the change in 2008 to 2013. So just to look at the first one there, Chinese exports to the United States. In that earlier five-year period, they grew 157% over the period. In the more recent five years, that fell to just 30% growth. Likewise, U.S. exports to China, still growing at a healthy clip, 75% over that period, but that's less than half the growth rate of U.S. exports to China in the prior five years. Chinese holdings of U.S. securities, after an extraordinary period of growth uh, in the early 2000s, are, of course, slowing. As things become saturated, China normally becomes wealthier, The stock of U.S. direct investment in China, similarly, extraordinary growth from the 1980s forward until pretty recently, but today slowing to a growth rate of only 14% in the stock of U.S. FDI in China over the past five years. The standout exception is the last pair of bars, Chinese FDI foreign direct investment into the United States. 
from just 52% growth in that stock from 2002 to 2007, in the, most, in the previous five years to date, we have 631% growth in the value of that investment. Tilo's going to get into it in great detail, but let me just point out to you that all these previous flows, all these other good things that have happened between our two economies, none of them entailed new assets coming to America. We had products that were cheaper, and hence our consumers could consume more than they otherwise would have been able to. We had American assets going to China, which was great for those companies and great for China in many ways. But this new element of the story we're talking about is the story of assets coming to our country and being placed here by citizens and the firms of another country. It's the first time that's been a key part of the story, and it's something to be excited about and feel good about. At the same time, of course, we know that the U.S. and China have a very complicated relationship. This is the first time the United States has hosted so much direct investment from a non-ally, a partner in many ways, but a non-ally partner out there in the world. And hence, in the slides you're about to see that describe the economic story, what we have to reconcile at the end of the day is that we have today less than 20% positive congressional attitudes about China, And as the numbers are going to show, 78% of all congressional districts in America are now hosting Chinese companies. So we have an extraordinary gulf between our feelings still about what it means to be in a world where China is an important player and the benefits that are now starting to become quite consequential um, in our local communities around the U.S. And to detail those a little bit, I'd like to ask my colleague Tilo to come up. Thank you. As we uh, see on this chart, Chinese investment in the United States has grown significantly over the past uh, couple of years. And Dan and I, we've both spent uh, a tremendous amount of time uh, clarifying those patterns uh, over the past couple of years. Um, We have, since 2011, maintained a database that tracks each individual Chinese investment that's coming into the United States, both greenfield projects, so... uh, uh, establishments that uh, the Chinese companies build from scratch, and the acquisition of existing U.S. assets. Uh, Since 2000, uh, we count about $46 billion worth of transactions uh, coming from China to the United States. Uh, And as you can see, most of that, about 90% of it, happened over the past five years only. So it has indeed, as Steve mentioned, turned from a trickle into a stream already. And... uh, Uh, the trend is going up further. So while we know that Chinese investment is coming in, what we're not so sure about is what impact is this Chinese capital going to have on the U.S. economy. Um, Some in the U.S. believe that Chinese FDI is going to have the same impact, the same benefits as FDI from other economies. Um, A lot of people believe that Chinese investment is bad for the U.S. as an economy. And frankly, the majority just doesn't know. The reason is it's a new trend as we've seen and there's simply not enough research out there that looks specifically at the impact of Chinese companies and Chinese investment in the U.S. until today. What we have did, what we have done for this study is we've taken our database on Chinese FDI transactions in the U.S. and we've broken it down uh, by congressional district. So we present a picture of Chinese investment Chinese establishments, and Chinese uh, job provision 
in each of the 435 congressional districts in the United States. Um, as you can see on this map, it is not just a story for East Coast or West Coast economies. It's a story that impacts all of America. Uh, we count that today already 340 of 435 congressional districts, around 80% of all districts are hosting Chinese companies in their neighborhoods. Um, and it is a broad-based trend uh, that we break further down into individual state profiles. So we provide a lot of detailed information on each individual state broken down by congressional district uh, to make the operations of Chinese companies more transparent, to allow locals to track these companies, understand what they're doing in their home cities and hometowns, and um, establish uh, a story and anecdotal evidence that these companies are beneficial to the local community. This uh, is uh, a perhaps surprising story. That's North Carolina, a state that has battled with the impacts of globalization for many, many years, has lost a lot of its textile industry, furniture industry, two countries like China. Uh, North Carolina is one of the top recipients of Chinese investment today. Around 15,000 people in the state alone are employed today by Chinese-owned companies. So it's a tremendous success story for the state of North Carolina. Uh, same is true for the state of Ohio, for example, which is going to be the home of Fuyao Glass and other Chinese auto parts companies that are investing in not just purchases of existing U.S. companies, but also greenfield investments that are creating hundreds and thousands of new jobs in those states. We also have a couple of you know, surprising results uh, for states which we would have expected to attract a lot of Chinese investments, but that maybe are only at the beginning of uh, this process. Washington is one example. It is a very globally-minded state that has a lot of foreign investment overall, but it hasn't so far been very successful attracting a lot of Chinese companies. So another perspective for local officials to perhaps think about what other states are doing and for uh, uh, local mayors and uh, representatives to think about what their districts could do to host more of this new Chinese capital. Going back to the national level, one of the most important findings of our report is that while oftentimes the headlines in the papers are dominated by trophy purchases like the Wall of Astoria, Chinese investment is not just going to the rich parts of the country. Chinese investment is a broad story, and in fact, the majority of Chinese capital is going to districts with low to medium household incomes. That is a very important finding. The most tangible um, benefit from a local perspective is, of course, jobs. And I think this is going to be uh, the, the, the most broadly discussed uh, number uh, that uh, is in our report. Uh, our granular perspective allows us to present the first detailed assessment of Chinese jobs provision in the United States so jobs that are directly associated with Chinese-owned companies in the U.S. Uh, we count that today, as of 2014, more than 80,000 Americans are employed by Chinese companies here in the U.S. Um, that is up from less than 15,000 just five years ago. Um, I have to say that this is a very conservative estimate, so we only count direct jobs. 
Uh, we, we don't include part-time employees. We also don't include indirect job creation, so at the construction phase or at suppliers. Um, so this is a very conservative estimate. Another very important finding is that um, there are a lot of fears that Chinese acquisitions in the U.S. could lead to uh, 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 the transfer of jobs, of U.S. jobs, back to China. Uh, Chinese companies could purchase assets here and then take the technology, take the valuable brands, and ship it back to China. That is not happening. It's indeed the opposite. In the overwhelming majority of cases that we look at, uh, Chinese acquisitions have resulted in additional job creation after uh, a company was acquired here in the U.S., and uh, this should contribute to a, a more balanced debate about uh, Chinese acquisitions here in the U.S. from a worker's perspective. The last important thing, uh, finding that I want to mention, and especially in the context of uh, current dynamics around intellectual property protection and espionage, is that while we still have the perception of China as a low-tech economy, and, and there are, uh, no question, tensions about uh, uh, IPR protection, Chinese companies are becoming important contributors of local research and development spending here in the U.S. Um, Chinese companies are increasingly ready to pay market prices for U.S. technology assets. Uh, they're increasingly ready and able to maintain R&D operations in the U.S., and they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars every year on research and development activities in the U.S., utilizing the U.S. labor force, utilizing existing clusters here in the U.S., and also utilizing the existing U.S. system for intellectual property rights protection, which they don't have in the same way back in China. Um, these are some of the benefits uh, that I think are worth mentioning. We look at others, including export linkages uh, in the report, um, but I'm going to turn it back to Dan now to talk a little bit about the uh, potential for Chinese uh, investment in the years ahead. Thanks, Dilo. Just to finish up here in another two, two or three minutes or so, um, uh, let me, let's talk about the potential going forward, none of which is guaranteed to happen. And economists have ruined their reputations trying to project jobs, gains from economic deepening between uh, major economies. But if, we want, if you want to play that game, because I'm not going to do it, sort of not going to do it, um, you would look at this. You would look at Japan as a direct investor in the United States from the 1980s. We, you think 80,000 jobs is a lot in America? Today, Japanese-affiliated companies employ about 700,000 Americans. Those Japanese-U.S. companies doing R&D earn licensing fees for their American subsidiaries from back home in Japan. Those Japanese subsidiaries in America export from America, so much so that uh, Fred Hochberg, who spoke with us here at the committee a couple years ago, is going around looking for Japanese and now Chinese companies to support as American exporters. That's very much in his remit. So that's what the patterns traditionally look like, and they are worth getting somewhat excited about. If we think about where China is as a global investor today, and we bravely project how much more Chinese outbound investment is going to take place in the years ahead because of the boldness of people like Chairman Cho, who's going to speak uh, in a minute, you know, $700 billion of Chinese global investment is nothing compared to where China is headed. If it becomes just half normal, 
we'll see $2 trillion and then more of Chinese outbound investment around the world in 2020. And a good chunk of that has the potential to come to the United States. If we see the same Chinese interest in investing in America in the next five years as we've seen in the last five years, then we're talking about, these are U.S. job projections here based on these scenarios, going from, say, 80,000 to, say, 200,000 or maybe even more Americans getting paychecks from Chinese-affiliated companies. And that's something that I think any politician, whether local or national, uh, understands the usefulness and the importance of um, pretty immediately. But let me finish with this by reminding you that none of this is a done deal yet. And it's not just a question of whether our local mayors get it right. They're not just competing with the mayor next door. Uh, uh, the mayor is going to come on in a second, uh, beat out Dallas to bring Hunan Copper to one of the poorest counties in America uh, and shows what you can do. But they've now got to compete against Germans and Swiss and French and Australians and Canadians and people all over the world who are even or at least as eager, I should say, at landing some of these investments um, as America is accustomed uh, to, uh, to trying to do. It's local officials uh, competing in an international environment, in fact. And every level, every branch of the U.S. government will need to have a role to play to make it possible for hardworking local officials to win that fight, to win that battle, whether it's the executive branch, the legislative, uh, or, of course, the Congress. We have agenda items like getting a bilateral investment treaty done, making sure we negotiate uh, an opening door in China at the same time as ours stays opened so that we keep this a political feel-good story rather than getting hung up about asymmetries in how these investments are flowing. And, of course, making sure that our courts back up the due process that America is famous for so that if a Chinese company feels like it's mistreated by U.S. investment law, it can even take the White House to court and win. I'd like to see a lot of other countries in the world be able to show the same kind of patterns. You have your role to play here in the audience as well as advisors and business people, public intellectuals, and interested citizens. You'll be involved in conversation about the United States and China in the future as you have been in the past. And I encourage you to have those conversations based as much as possible on the best available information on what's actually happening and what the local implications are, rather than just on gut feelings. Thanks very much, and thanks again, Steve, for making it possible to do this.